want you to think about the last thing you lost. Maybe you lost it really good. Maybe you found it. Maybe you have it. But think about that thing. I want to encourage you that you're not any worse off than a man named Stephen Thomas. Stephen uh, spent his career in Silicon Valley. Very smart man. Uh, when a little thing called Bitcoin came out, he went ahead and bought some of that. He bought 7,000 of them, put them in what they call an iron key hard drive where they would just wait until he was ready to invest the, or take those out and uh, sell those. And Stefan got to watch Bitcoin, this little thing that no one really heard of and no one took seriously, grow. It doubled, it tripled, it quadrupled. Uh, last, I uh, hit his all-time high in December of Bitcoin, one Bitcoin worth $50,000. And so Stefan thought, well, it's time to go cash some of those in. I'm going to make some money. And he went to access that hard drive, put his password in, and was wrong. He put it in again. I probably just typed it wrong. Didn't work. And while you and I, when that happens to us, we have to remember our grandma's dog's maiden name, and we can usually figure it out somewhere. We hope when it asks our favorite pet, the other pets aren't looking. There is no thing for that for Stefan's situation because he put it on what is an iron key hard drive. And that little hard drive made for very secure things gives you 10 attempts. And on number 11, it wipes your hard drive. And so he's going, I've, I don't know what to do now. I've already burned through two. He's way awake at night and think, retrace his sweeps in his mind, put it back in and guess what? Wouldn't work. Stefan now sits in Southern California. I guess Northern California. Eight out of ten attempts taken. Going, what am I going to do? I have got $300 million worth of Bitcoin right now that I cannot access unless I remember what that stinking password is. I'm going to guess you've lost things. You've never lost things quite like that before. My wife will tell you we have an annual tradition at least once a year. I will lose something of pretty important value. We'll spend a week looking for it. I will make the dad joke. I bet it's the last place we look. It's always the last place you look. You stop looking after that. We usually find it. And I'm pretty happy about it. And I want you to remember that feeling of just losing something. And then what happens when you find something? That you're pretty happy and you're pretty excited when that moment happens. Because Jesus is going to tell a couple of stories, three parables, in which he describes losing and finding. And in these stories that are really familiar to you, he reveals something about the gospel and a hurdle to the actual gospel itself. That he wants us to recognize as we read those stories as he told that stories to his audience and so he begins to tell these stories in Luke 15 what I'm going to attempt to do this morning is put the emphasis where Jesus put the emphasis now like many of his parables there's multiple meanings to this and to these parables there certainly are but I think in these stories Jesus is not telling the parable of the lost coin I think he's telling the parable of the found coin of the found sheep and the found son and he tells these uh, parables to his audience and he's going to do some preacher tricks in there, some great communicator tips. He's going to 
say it, repeat it, and say it again to make sure his audience really understands what he's saying and what he wants them to know about God and how much God loves them. And so he's going to do that. And he begins, as Kent read so eloquently in Luke 15. And Luke wants us to know his audience here. And so it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He wants us to know the context of who Jesus is talking to. And Jesus has that mixed audience. We could probably divide ourselves into the sinners and the holy rollers who had Jesus had in his audience. And he's going to do something that I do in counseling sometimes. And that is, I'm going to talk to the adults with the teenager in the room. I'm going to say things like, boy, your teenager really needs to earn your trust. What are some ways you think your teenager could earn your trust so he could have more freedom and independence that he desperately wants? And I say that in front of the teenager so the teenager can just listen in on this. And he hears, oh, my parents don't trust me because I did this, but I can do this and they'll give me more freedom if they can trust me more. And he does that with this par- these parables when he has kind of the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the sinners and he has them together and he's going to say, I'm going to talk to both of you by telling one story over and over to you guys. So you'll listen in on this. And so he tells the first parable. The parable of the found sheep. When the sheep wanders off and Jesus, the shepherd, leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. And he finds the one and he throws it over his shoulders and he brings it back. And then in Luke 15, 6 and 7, he says, though, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Then he tells this parable of a lost or found coin. That it's 10 silver coins. Luke wants us to know that weird detail in there. She had 10 and she loses one. And maybe it's just 10 random silver coins. I tend to think it's probably the silver coins a woman would have got as part of her wedding dowry. They would have made a necklace of that with the 10 coins that she would have worn both for sentimental purposes as well as it was valuable as well. She would have worn that. And maybe one of those coins popped off, fell, and she began to look for it. It says she looked all night for it. When she finds it, she's excited. She begins to throw the party, Luke 15, verse 10, in the same way. I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we have a shepherd and a woman, both finding what they lost and rejoicing and throwing a party. We begin to see God's love in that story, certainly. We see the struggle of finding what was lost. And we see this constant party reference in it, and we think that's kind of odd to find something and then throw a party i think jesus is showing us something again about the nature and character of god most of us don't find things and then throw parties maybe if it was really sentimental important to you you might but i think again we're seeing the character of god in these stories that what he's like when lost things and lost people more importantly are found. Maybe when I lose things, I find relief. When God finds lost people, he throws parties and he celebrates. 
Grandparents, you like to spoil your kids, grandkids. I'm going to tell you as a parent, it's, I love to give gifts to my kids. I give a gift to an adult, and they're like, oh, thank you, that's meaningful. I give a gift to my five-year-old, and there's laps ran around the house rejoicing, skipping, screaming. You're the best. I love you. This is, uh, this is great. Because I see the joy and excitement they have when they are given a gift. If I give a gift to Kent, he's going to write me a thank you card. Thank you. That's so meaningful. Thanks for thinking of me. What I'd love for Kent to do is if I give him the gift to go skipping and jumping. Jared, you're the best. Kids do that. And we see that in this story that there's rejoicing, there's excitement in this story. Here's what Jesus is reminding us. Man, you think the gospel is good for you? It's incredible and awesome for God. The God doesn't just love us, he loves the gospel too. Man, when lost people are found, God, God is like throwing a party in heaven over it. It's spontaneous, it's not planned. He's like, we are going to celebrate. A lost person has been found. I have to remember sometimes that God loves me more than I love me. God loves my kids more than I love my kids. And I think I love the gospel. God loves the gospel even more than I do. We're celebrating when lost people are found. There's excitement in heaven when lost people come to him, comes to him. When people are baptized into Christ, we make you get excited. God's throwing a party. He's throwing a party in heaven. The angels are rejoicing when those moments happen. Jesus closes with one final story. He tells the story of what we call the prodigal son. It's the found son. You remember that there's two sons. The younger son comes up to the father and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now, a.k.a. Dad, I wish you were dead. I'm ready to go live my life. And so the father says, okay. Sells what he needs to sell, sells the land, sells the cattle, gives it to the younger son. The younger son leaves, goes off to the land of the pagans. Lives his life, it said, his wild living. He parties. He has fun. Does his thing. Lives his own life. Then the famine hits the land. He runs out of friends. He runs out of funding. You read about the pro athletes that have it all and then splurge and it's all gone. And this is the young man. He looks around and he finds himself feeding pigs. Not a good place for a Jewish boy amongst the pigs. And I might be amongst the pigs and, I, pigs and look over and say, well, bacon. He looks amongst the pigs and he says, mmm, what they have looks great. That slop looks pretty good. You know, I think I'm going to go home. Because even the servants at my dad's house lived better than pig slop. They ate better, they had meals. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him, make me a servant. And he heads home. And as he's walking home, you remember the story where his father sees him from a distance and he runs out to him and he meets him and the son starts his speech and the father won't let him finish the speech. He says, no, 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 get him a robe, get him sandals, put the family seal back on his finger. 
my son is here, we're going to throw a party. We're going to have barbecue. We're going to have T-bone. We're going to have ribeye. Because my lost son has been found. And Jesus stops the other stories here. But not in this parable. He's going to continue this story because we forgot the older brother who stuck around. And he's going to tell him what happens in that part of the story in Luke 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked them, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You, you've never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You know, the brother speaks his mind, has a backbone. Got to respect him for that. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But, you ha but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father would have said, get over it. Could have ended the story there. But the father's going to plead with the older brother and say, no, 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 let me teach you something about a father's love and about what it means to have lost people become found again. The son's objection, the older son, dad, I never even got to celebrate. You never gave me anything and I was the good son. I stayed home. I did the work. I honored you. He'll even answer that objection. The father reminds him, son, the inheritance is settled. Everything I have is yours. My love for you has never wavered. Anything I own is yours, a.k.a. if you want to kill your own fatted calf, go for it. Son, if you want to go and have a party with your friends and kill the whole herd, guess what? It's yours. Go for it. Because I love you and I care about you and I know you've stayed and done what is right. My love for you has never wavered. Either. So it's yours. Have it. But he reminds him, guess what? Your little brother wandered off. We thought he was lost. We thought he was gone. We thought we were never going to see him again. And he's back and he's with us and he's home. And that has caused us for us to celebrate, to rejoice. And we see the nature of God in this story. Once again, let's throw the party and let's celebrate. What does the Father show us? A little perspective, which older folks, we know. The older we get, the more perspective we seem to have in life. That the older we get, it seems like the more important our family is, the more important our relationship with God is. 
And the father's showing some of that perspective in this story that the younger, older brother doesn't have yet, and neither does the younger, actually. That what's important is, man, he's, younger brother's returned. He's not lost anymore. He's found. He's with us again, and so we're going to celebrate. And now Jesus is throwing darts at the religious people in the audience. They're listening in, and they're going, wait a second, who am I in the story? I'm found. I've been with God. Do I still celebrate? Or am I backing away from the party? Am I pouting? Am I angry? What we see in this story is God's eternal perspective and how we need to maintain that as well. To remember the internal things, not the temporary things. To have that eternal perspective versus a temporary perspective. C.S. Lewis says this, If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this. He writes that in Mere Christianity. Do we have an eternal perspective? And throughout history, in times of church growth, you've seen it have a pretty eternal perspective on life. That when crisis hits the world, the church seems to double down on how it should live. And the church will grow as a result. A great example of that, if you look into early church history, around 249 AD, for about the next 13 years, there's a plague that goes through the Roman world. And the plague was severe enough, one out of three Romans died as a result. The pagan response to this disease that they didn't understand, they didn't know what it was really other than it was, if you're around other people that had it, you were going to die, was, get those people away from me. If you're sick, if you don't feel good, we're going to neglect you, we're going to leave you alone, and you're going to go and die. When the Christian perspective was people are hurting and suffering, we're going to go help with that. In fact, an early church leader, Dionysus, said that was, we have his writing that says this, Most of our brother Christians showed unbound love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The Christians went out and helped people and said, we're here to help and serve. The Caesar at the time, we have his writing that says, I wish our pagan priests were more like the Christians because they're helping people and they're making things better. In fact, historians Looking back, say, maybe if they would have cared for people better, they would have saved a few more people. So we see having an eternal perspective changes how we live our lives. The other thing is this, and that is that we've got to love like Jesus. The difference in the older son and the father is the father's love for his younger son never wavers. The older son's response to his younger brother is that son of yours. We use that at our house too. 
But the son continue, the father continues to have love for his son even when he runs away. That's exactly right. There's a hurdle to the gospel, and it's me. And there's a hurdle to the gospel, and it's us. When we misprioritize, when we choose not to love like Jesus loves. And he's pointing us out, and he's reminding us, and he's prodding us us about that. I love my own agenda. I love my stuff. When I need to love like Jesus does. And love like the Father loves me. Too often I think we're kind of like my friend's t-shirt. My buddy Clinton, when I would preach, would occasionally break out this t-shirt. In fact, the first time he did it, his wife was out of town because she wouldn't let him wear it to church. Here's the church was... The shirt was black, white lettering, it had three words. Should be on the screen. Three letters. Meh. Period. And I'd be preaching my guts out, and I'd look over and I'd see Clinton's shirt. Black shirt, white letters. Meh. Added at least five minutes to every sermon, I see, saw his shirt. He got to where he'd wear it as a joke, like, meh. Man, that would fire me up. You want to get Kent going? You can buy the shirt and you can order it. But so often I think we're talking about the gospel and we love the gospel and at least we think we do and we're really we're just kind of like, meh. Meh is like, I don't care, whatever. The ultimate teenage word, meh. That we've got to remember what it's like to be excited about the gospel, what Christ has done for us. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That we don't have to be a hurdle to the gospel. We can be its champion. If we, if we remember that perspective that we're supposed to have, That we can remember the love God has for us. And he has it for other people. That we don't have to be the older brother standing outside the party going, "Eh, whatever. Meh. That we need to remember it's the best news ever. One out of nine people in our world don't have access to clean water. Every two minutes, a child dies of a water-related illness. Do we look at that problem and just go, meh? Not my problems, not my grandkids, not my kid. God's deepest desire for us is not that we'll go and help Poor people. God's deepest desire for us is that we'll love those poor people so much that surely we'll go and help them. By the way, the worst case scenario for those of us 
who want to end the water problem is that we give up Netflix for about five years. And we could solve the water problem. But let's be honest, it doesn't seem to be a big priority for us. And certainly, we can do better with our money and evangelizing with our money, allowing people who are, have a passion and desire to do this 24-7, empower them to do that with our money. But if we're honest and we look at statistics, we don't do that well at all either. That if you tithe, if you give 10% of your income, you're in the minority in an average church, it's only 10 to 25% of you, that in 2019, when we, they, last time we looked at it and had, felt like we had good numbers, they found that the average churchgoer, Christian, gives 2.5% of their income to church. For a good frame of reference for that, I challenge you to go to the Great Depression when we didn't have money to give and those people gave 2.7% to their church. We've got a ways to go even with that. Now, I know Northwest is an anomaly. Kit brags about you and how you give, especially during a season like this where you're marching for missions and you guys are a generous place. I just want to remind you, you're not going to take it with you. That's temporary that we prepare for the eternal. I think about Oscar Schindler and Schindler's List. You can just Google this last part and just watch it. When he's leaving his factory, and what he's done during the Holocaust is he's taken all of his fortune and he's rescued people, put them to work, they're safe with him. And as he's leaving his factory, he's going to get in his car and he thinks, oh, my car, why do I still have my car? If I would have sold this car, I could have saved 10 more people. And he's walking to his car, he grabs for his pen. This is a gold pen. I could have sold this. I could have saved two more people. Oh, I wish I would have sold my pen. Let's not be a people that when we get to heaven or we're in paradise with Christ, we look and we say, oh, I wish I would have loved the gospel more. I wish I would have reached out. That my priorities were on the temporary. That I didn't love people like Christ does. That we need to, just this week, let's make our priority the gospel. And say, I'm going to be a gospel person this week. Watch how God blesses you and blesses this church when you do that. There's great news. That the 12 people that followed Jesus around in his earthly ministry messed this up royally. James and John, the sons of thunder, early social media people, because they see some people they don't like and they say, let's call fire down on those people. Jesus says, no, there's a better way. I relate to Philip, who in a moment where it's like, time to show your faith, he's like, all I got is two loaves, or five loaves and two fish, not much we can do with this one. Sometimes I'm like Peter. I don't deny Jesus, but there's times where I should open my mouth about him and I stay silent. 
And each time Jesus restores and reminds them, make the gospel a priority. Stefan can blame the software, the hardware, on why he can't get his money out, why he can't get his bitcoins out. Reality is, Stefan's his own worst enemy, isn't he? So am I. Don't be our own worst enemy in this. That I'm going to argue that being locked out of an investment of $300 million pales in comparison to one being locked out of heaven and to being in heaven and going, I wish, man, I wish I would have done more. Someone I love is not here. Someone I cared about I should have shared within the gospel and I never did it. That if you have breath in your lungs today, you've got time to change. You've got time to say, I'm going to have a gospel priority. That all I'm going to do is I'm going to spend my time reaching lost people like Jesus did. I'm going to learn to love more like he loved. I'm going to prioritize what is eternal and not worry about the temporary as I follow him. That you know what? The pig pen is fun. But it's going to be temporary. The party's going to be eternal. And I'm going to welcome you to that party if you've never been a part of it before. That maybe this morning is a time you're ready to give your life to Christ. I want to encourage you to do that. That maybe it's time for you to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. To die to self in the waters of baptism and come up a new person. I want to encourage you to do that. If we can pray or support you this morning... We love to do that as well. We know life's hard. And we want to walk alongside you because we know Jesus is. If we can serve you in any way this morning, we'd love to do so. Please come forward as we stand together and sing.